Welcome to Envision, fostering a community for change. Your host is Thomas Rosenberg. In today's program, you'll meet fascinating people who are implementing innovative ideas to make a difference both locally and globally. Now, here is Thomas Rosenberg. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Envision. I'm Thomas Rosenberg, and today we'll be discussing some of the different aspects of money, including what money is, what it means to fully align our investments with our values, and the systemic challenges to doing so. We'll also be looking at the benefits that can accrue from investing locally and new opportunities that arise from innovations like blockchain. Money is an important topic because many of us don't know what it is, nor do we understand the systemic issues that prevent good intentions from coming to fruition. We are also unaware of new technological innovations that change how and where money is created and used. Today, I am joined by two people with extensive experience in finance and investment management. Each has over 20 years experience and they share a common interest in analyzing large systems with systems thinking. Marco Vangelisti is a 100% impact investor. He is a founding member of Slow Money and the National Coalition for Community Capital. He speaks nationally as a guest lecturer and author and has also created a curriculum for engaged citizens to understand the money and banking system, which can be accessed at Essential Knowledge for Transition. Nick Gogarty's experience is in quantitative portfolio management, blockchain, trading technology, and innovation. He's a serial entrepreneur with endeavors that include using blockchain technology in renewable energy and healthcare applications and is the author of The Nature of Value, How to Invest in the Adaptive Economy. Marco and Nick, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. Pleasure. So, Marco, starting off with you, could you give us a brief primer on what money is and how it's created? (laughs) Um, Sure. Um, So, uh, basically, after the uh, 2007 and 2008 debacle, I started looking at uh, the money system to understand what was going on. And one of the things I noticed is that the people that were you know, the Occupy movement, the people that were against the bankers had very little understanding of the money and banking system. So I basically created a little program for them uh, initially for the public banking movement and the transition movement and the Occupy movement about money and banking. And there are basically a number of misconceptions about money. Um, You know, the economists obviously look at what money does, right? So it's... uh, it's supposed to be a means of exchange, so facilitate economic transactions, a store of value, and a unit of account. Um, what few people know is that money, the money we use, is basically mostly electronic money uh, created by banks uh, when they make loans. And so it's almost like a private-public partnership where the government kind of guarantees the money that is being created by the private sector. And, um, you know, to understand money, you really need to overcome uh, four patterns of thought. And when I'm talking about money here, I'm referring to the dollar or most of the common national currencies. So I'm not talking about blockchain, which is a little bit, uh, you know, Bitcoin and blockchain is a little bit different than, than this. But basically... The three patterns of thought that need to be overcome are, first, there is no free lunch. Actually, there is a free lunch because money is created through an accounting entry, and it's kind of hard for people to wrap their head around that. Uh, The other uh, pattern of thought that needs to overcome is that money is a positive number, right? You think about money in your pocket, money in your bank account, and you think money as a positive number. 
But actually, money is a creature of accounting, and it can be a positive or negative number depending on which balance sheet it sits on. So, for example, the paper money in your pocket uh, is obviously a positive number for you, but is a negative number, is a liability of the Federal Reserve. And the money in your checking account is a positive number for you, but is a negative number, in fact, a liability of the banks. And the third uh, pattern of thought that needs to be overcome to understand money is that money is a creature of the nation state. When you ask people who creates money, most of the people say, well, the government or or the Federal Reserve. Uh, But that's not primarily true. The Federal Reserve does create the paper money, which is just a small percentage of the money in circulation. Most of the money is created by the private banking sector in the process of making loans. And finally, the last pattern of thought is money is uniform. So you think about a dollar in your pocket or a dollar in the checking account being fungible. And that's typically the case when the banking system works well. But in times of crisis, you see that money is actually hierarchical. And there are certain types of money, like uh, the liability of the Federal Reserve or cash money, that sits on a higher rank of that uh, hierarchy. So those are basically the challenges in understanding money. And uh, again, we can talk about the key questions that we can ask to um, to understand money, but I'll stop there for, for the time being. <laughs> okay. Uh, you, could you also mention, just briefly highlight the three primary variables that finance is based on and the emotional shadows that those three variables represent? I'm not sure I understand your question. Well, okay. So the three, what are the three variables, the primary variables that finance is based on? We'll start with that. Oh, you're switching from, Okay. So, so yes. uh, that's the other thing is uh, when people talk about money, they tend to conflate three systems, the money and banking system, the economic system, and the financial system, right? Mm-hmm. So money and banking is really about the means of exchange and how that facilitates economic transaction. The economy is about uh, distribution and allocation and production of goods and services and raw material to produce them. And the financial system is really about the use of long-term capital for investments and uh, more and more for speculations, at least in the last uh, 20, 30 years. So um, I guess you're shifting now to the investment world. And yes. um, Sorry about uh, that. I should have been clearer. Th- that's okay. That's okay. I mean, um, maybe we can talk a little bit about money before we go to the investment. Uh, I would probably sure. keep that Jump for in. the last part of the program. Okay. That's fine. Um, so did you, is there something else you wanted to add about money in particular that was coming to mind? Yeah. So basically, there are some key questions that people need to un- understand and answer or be able to answer when they're looking at a money system, whether this is a uh, national currency, a local currency, or a blockchain, cryptocurrency, or whatever. And the first question is, who creates money? And the second question is, by what authority can they create that money? The third question, which is kind of very important, is who captured the seniorage? So the seniorage is a term that describes the difference between the cost of producing the currency and the nominal value of that currency. An example is 
a $100 bill printed by the Federal Reserve costs 12 cents to print, but can buy $100 worth of things. And so the difference between the 12 cents, which is the cost of producing it, and the $100, which is what it's worth, is called the seniorage. Now, in the case of electronic money, actually, the, the seniorage is the whole value. So in other words, uh, creating, let's say, a Bitcoin it takes nothing. It's just a computer switch, if you want. And yet, it's worth now more than $3,000, right? So who captured the seniorage is, is a very important question. What is money backed by, right? We no longer live in a gold standard. So what, what backs that money that we are using? Who benefits and who bears the risk of money creation? And who controls the quantity of money in circulation? And what are the incentives that drive money creation? So those are all questions that your listeners need to keep in mind as we discuss the topic of money, bitcoins, and, and blockchains, and so on, in terms mm-hmm. of understanding money itself. Okay, super. Nick, I'd like to bring you into the conversation here and sure. change the topic a little, change the, 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 the mix a little bit. So in your book, sure. The Nature of Value, you looked at several key questions. And could you just start off with a brief definition of value? Sure. Um, in, in the book, you know, value is, is uh, a, a totally anthropic thing. Um, what I mean by that is value is, is highly subjective. It's what we perceive um, to be value. Um, most of economics uh, aspires to be physics um, when in reality it's, it's social system. Um, and so, you know, things that are of um, value uh, to us are you know, literally, it's like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, and when we think in the, let's say, the traditional sense of investing, um, and people say something like value investing, that's basically um, the traditional way of assuming what the value of an equity or a bond is, which is basically what's the expected future cash flow, um, positive future cash flow, and any residual value from, from the asset at some future time. Um, that's the traditional uh, mode of economics. It should also be acknowledged that um, many times uh, traditional economics fails to fully capture or recognize value um, where you have uh, what are called you know, negative externalities. Um, and when that happens, um, you know, you have events such as pollution, um, carbon and other things where something um, creates a certain value, but the costs are borne by others. Um, at a future time. Does that answer your question, Tom? Or Yes. Yes, it does. So is uh, there... Go ahead, Marco. You wanted to jump yeah, in. Yeah, actually, there is a... I think um, uh, this brings up an interesting point, which is the difference with the, with, between price and value, right? So in mm-hmm. other words, uh, the economy works based on price, and price is the mechanism that signals to you know, the market what to produce, how much, and how we can sell it, and for, for how much. But the price does not capture everything. And for example, if you think about uh, what uh, Nick mentioned about the externalities, right? There is um, there's a very important study done by the UN. Uh, this was released uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, was done by the economics of ecosystems and biodiversity. And what they tried to do is to apply environmental economics uh, techniques to put a price on things that the market does not see. 
And these are things um, like pollution, right? Um, uh, land erosion, use of natural resources like water and, uh, uh, you know, forests and so on. The interesting thing is that nature has created all these natural resources for us and provides a number of ecosystem services like pollination, uh, water purification and so on without charging us. And so uh, if we just look at price and the mechanisms of the market, we tend to overexploit nature and create pollution since we don't have to pay for it. So if you were to factor in the cost, and that's the exercise that the economics of ecosystems and biodiversity engaged over 15 years, and finally, I think um, they published the results in, I think, April 2012, what they found is that Globally, we are using about $7.3 trillion of unpriced natural capital, at least we were doing that in 2009, to generate the about $60 trillion worth of economic activity. In other words, we are receiving a massive subsidy from nature that supports and uh, um, helps with our economic growth, and at the end of the day with financial returns, at a tune of about at least 12% of the GDP uh, worldwide. And that's basically the challenge for the people that are trying to build a better world out there, is the fact that everything seems to be running based on the tune of the market, and the market only sees prices. And most of those prices are uh, dishonest prices. So if you, if you look, for example, at one of the most damaging industries in the world in terms of ecosystem services and natural capital used is um, cattle ranching and farming in South America. And, uh, you know, in order to generate something like $17 billion worth of revenues, they used in 2009 uh, more than $300 billion worth of natural capital, mostly in the form of soil erosion and uh, deforestation and so on, to raise cattle, you know, and send it to uh, fast food restaurants. Now, the interesting thing is that if the hamburger that you buy at McDonald's or Burger King was sold at an honest price, you would be paying about $100 for that burger, right? And all of a sudden, you know, uh, farm-to-table restaurants would look cheap in comparison, <laughs> right? But yeah. that's, that's the problem that we're dealing with is that we don't see a lot of the value when we just look at prices. Super. So, Nick, yeah. in your book, you mentioned that, I mean, that, that Marco teased this up quite nicely. The, sure. You mentioned in your book the, the, that an economy should be based on ecologies would be, or based on ecology would be better. So what would that look like for you? How is ecology a good model for the economy? Well, um, from a few perspectives, um, one, most economic models are, are um, fairly linear and fairly basic, and a lot of the assumptions behind um, economic models are, are, are dangerously false. Um, so, for example, um, everything changes, everything adopts, and everything dies. Um, you know, and so you shouldn't have you know, cash flows go out forever. Everything has a life cycle, whether it's a car company, even a currency. So the average life of a currency is 27 years. Um, most people aren't aware of that because we live in, you know, the dollar or euro, or other currencies that have a little bit longer history or, or the British pound is 350 years. The other thing is um, when you start thinking about 
things as being resilient. And if you look at everything or system and you say, okay, when is this going to stop? When is it going to die? When does it stop growing? That's a very important question to ask um, because a lot of economics just assumes linear, linear paths ad infinitum, um, whether that's debt or other things. The other thing that's interesting thinking from a whole systems perspective, um, kind of like an ecologist, is to understand that everything is in balance um, or has a balance. And so, for example, I was working for a small hedge fund in 07, 08, um, and, you know, looked at, at housing and house prices, and I have a very simple model articulated in the book about house prices and when are they out of whack, when are they out of line. And you can use a very simple um, model for looking at um, house prices relative to median incomes and treat homes um, almost as if they're in an income catchment basin um, for their value. And so the question is that whenever you see a, a single thing, a price, or you see a single relationship that's going extreme direction in one way, you should always ask, what's being displaced or how long can this go on before it stops? That doesn't happen a lot in, in a lot of economics. Um, a lot of economics is, is predicated upon infinite X. Um, that's not true. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So, yeah, I mean, well, if you what, think about, uh, this is a very good uh, point. Uh, you probably heard about uh, now switching to the investment world of compound interest and the power of compound interest, right? People say uh, you need to save now, and then what you save will generate a return, and that return gets compounded. You know, next year when you're going to get a return, it's going to be on the original amount plus the original you got as uh, the, the, amount, the amount you got as a return the first year and so on and so forth. And there is the magic of compounding, which would give you an exponential growth in your investment capital. Now, the funny thing is that if you think about having invested, um, uh, you know, a dollar, or I don't know what was the currency during the um, Egyptians, right? In, the Egypt, in, in Egypt, you think about a gram of gold, right, and having a return of 1% per year, now you would need to have more gold than is present in the whole galaxy. You see what I mean? It's like there are certain things, this idea that we can grow something and that even investment capital, um, you know, will have almost like a God-given right of growing through positive returns is really misguided. And to a certain extent, I mean, to connect the issue of investment capital and investing and money creation, and that's the one part that people uh, sometimes don't kind of connect the dot. Right, if you look at 1975, you know, the total amount of money in circulation was about, you know, one, under $1 trillion in terms of investments. Um, we had about something like $50 trillion in circulation in total, you know, financial assets. Now we have in excess of $300 trillion in financial liquid financial capital, just in, you know, stock markets and bond markets around the world and some of the most common asset classes. Now, the question is, how do we get from 50 trillion to 300 trillion? I mean, as you know, money does not grow on trees, right? So what is the mechanism by which the overall stock of financial capital grows from 50 to 300. And one of the main drivers is the expansion of balance sheets of central banks and commercial banks when they make loans. In other words, if you really look at how 
money originates. At the end of the day, it is really based on this idea of banks creating money when they make loans and basically monetizing the promise of the borrower to repay. And then that money enters into the system and the part that is not spent is invested and becomes invest, in investment capital. Marco, now, I'm going to need lot, to stop you. Yep. I'm going to need to stop you there. We need to take a short break, and we'll continue okay. our conversation with Nick Gogarty and Marco Vangelisti. us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. What makes a great leader? Most have a vision, one that starts beyond the resources available and continues from that point into developing a solid plan, organization, and company. Leadership issues are discussed each week on VoltCast, illuminating leadership with host Jeff Smith. Jeff has years of experience as a leader and executive coach, and his guests will bring you information that can help a team of any size. Listen every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? What is it about our relationships? How are they formed? How they work out? And why they sometimes don't? Every week is something new to engage you. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Envision with Thomas Rosenberg. To find out more about the program, please visit our website at regenerate.coach. That's regenerate.coach. You can also visit our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Envision Regenerative Communities. Now back to Envision. Here again is Thomas Rosenberg. Welcome back, everyone. We are here with Nick Bogarty and Marco Evangelisti. We were talking about how the definition of money changes depending on the participant's view, the definition of value, some aspects of slow money, and some of the underlying issues of the current money and banking system. Nick, I wanted to ask you, at what scale does, you know, going back to the question around economy-based or modeled after ecology, is there a certain scale that it needs to be done at? Can it be done at a local level or does it need to be done at a more macro scale? Um, I think <laughs> that's the nice thing about ecology. It, it's, uh, it's what's called scale invariant in, in the fact that, um, you know, everything is so networked at multiple scales that you can think or approach it at, at any level. Um, and, and really the, the big question or the big solution that you're solving for at whatever scale you're working for is, um, is sustainability. 
right? You, you want to have whatever your solution is, whatever your problem is, to be a long-term sustainable one. Um, in the earlier conversation that Marco was indicating about, um, you know, we were talking about you know, uh, negative externalities, right? And this concept of if you paid for all the real services in something, um, your hamburger would be $100. And that's exactly right. And the challenge is that there's really no free lunch. Um, and so if you incur all those costs today, um, but they don't show up in price, um, that ends up impacting at some point in the future. <laughs> there is no free lunch. And so to answer your question, um, really you should start thinking about um, uh, value and think about an ecological approach to an economy from a, from a sustainability of use of resources at whatever scale you're operating at. And I always acknowledge that you're probably operating or that there's a larger scale um, that you're operating within or a larger context. And so if you're trying to do something locally, you're still operating within a national context, right? And if you're even in a national level, you're operating in a national context. Um, so, you know, pick, pick the battles that you can, you can win and the things you can do and, um, you know, and then apply accordingly for, for thinking long-term and, and, um, and sustainably. Um, this is my oh. answer, Tom. Oh, no, that's super. So how does does one of the aspects you were talking about in terms of ecological services and also sure. uh, ec- uh, externalities, how does risk play into this perspective of modeling a economy on sure. you know, with with a biomimetic perspective? Sure. Um, you know risk is is basically we can let's define it is is simply um, you know, the likelihood or degree of a bad outcome, you know, the likelihood or certainty, whether it's highly uncertain or not, of some bad outcome that we don't want. Um, and most systems, um, as I mentioned earlier, in an ecology or an economy, run at some, some balanced environment. And what we do is if we trade, we, where there are natural trade-offs between often um, safety and efficiency. And I'll give you an example. The, the most obvious one most recently in, in economies is 2008, where we were running things incredibly leveraged, so they're incredibly high efficient, right? Everything was, banks are having incredibly high returns on equity, 20, 30%, blah, 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 highly, highly leveraged. Um, you got great, great efficiency, but not resilience. Um, and therefore, the first shock, the first thing that happened, they fail. And so one of the tricks is, is to be willing to step back and say, hey, I'm not going to run at peak efficiency. I'm going to run for maximum resilience. And an interesting example of this, of the economy at its highest level is the economy typically runs um, most effectively for the long term at about 80% capacity utilization for factories. The factory manufacturer's um, use index, when it runs above 80%, we end up getting inflation and adverse impacts. And below that, it's suboptimal. Um, and so it's a really interesting thing when you look at systems, don't always push to the maximum because you'll make it brittle. Um, you know, if you push in one direction, too much debt, too much leverage, um, you're going to make it brittle, it'll break. Um, in the opposite direction, um, it's about, okay, then we're not using our resources effectively. So you have to be willing to take the right amount of risk. And the thing to do is to really look at at systems or approaches or companies or whatever and say, how much cushion is built in here? And is that roughly the right amount? It's not about exactness, but it's about right feel. And if something is being run ridiculously high efficiency levels, 
um, it may be brittle and subject to break. In finance, that's, that's leverage and over-leveraging. Mm-hmm. Either, either at the personal level, the corporate level, or the national level. Super. Thank you. That's yeah. very helpful. Sure. So I would like to shift a little bit uh, to the focus on investing locally. And so, okay. Marco, if you could just give us a brief definition of what slow money is and what some of the benefits of investing locally can be. Sure. Yes. Um, before I do that, if I may, let me conclude the thought that I was uh, uh, tracing before the break. Yes, and I was absolutely. talking about you know money creation and investment capital and financial returns, which then will lead us to the local investing thing. Um, what, uh, what I was trying to say is that now we find ourselves in a world that has the largest amount of excess savings which are money waiting to be invested and not finding good opportunity to invest. And at the same time, we find ourselves uh, having the largest amount of debt, both private and public, in the history of humanity. And all I'm saying is that those two things are two sides of the same coin. And that we might see down the line, as some of the debt will not be repaid, a massive readjustment in the amount of investment capital out there. So this is simply to say epigrammatically, don't think that the investment capital you have out there uh, invested in mutual funds and hedge funds and everything else is as safe and as real as you think. Now, what we can think about is, uh, can we move beyond this uh, narrow lens of conventional finance whereby the only thing that matters is the financial risk, the financial return, and the liquidity of an investment. Liquidity means how fast it can convert it into cash, which are basically the three pillars of portfolio management uh, in the industry. And think about what is the impact that those investments are having. How uh, are those uh, returns generated? How sustainably can be generated at that level? And think about, well, one way to see the impact of your investments is to invest locally, to look at uh, the businesses in your community or uh, in your, let's say, food shed, right, the, the places from which your food comes from, and trying to invest there so that not only you will you will not longer just look at return and risk, but also at the positive outcome that your investments make possible. So let me talk about slow money, which is basically uh, comes out of slow food, and it's basically slow food for capital. The idea is that let's take some money out of the Wall Street game, uh, doing who knows what, and put it to work in the local economy with the ultimate goal of restoring the fertility of the soil. Because at the end of the day, no fertility of the soil, no civilization, no people, right? And so we've been uh, running out, you know, down this amazing uh, resource that was built over uh, many, many uh, thousands of years, which is the fertility of the soil and the soil itself, and we might use now finance to rebuild it, kind of regenerative finance. So that's basically what Slomani is. It is really a conversation about our food system, our money system and financial system, understanding that one path to fix both is to use our investment capital to restore the fertility of the soil close to where we live. Awesome. 
So can can slow money also help address some of the imbalances with payments for ecosystem services? With what? With the imbalance for with payments for ecosystem services. Oh sure, yeah. So to a certain extent, I mean, uh, the here's the idea: is if you're investing in a in a local organic farmer, right? Uh, you're investing in something that uh, operates on honest prices. Because you know that uh, maybe it's a family farm, maybe if there are farm workers, they are uh, you know, decently paid, you can actually talk to them, uh, you see that the land is taken care, and therefore you know, the prices which they sell their produce um, has embedded the um, imperative to uh, not deplete or run down the uh, natural capital on which it depends. And so you could argue that... Um, uh, you know, local slow money investments are um, making use of, of honest price and minimizing basically the externalities that we see in the traditional industrial food system. Mm-hmm. So what do people need to keep in mind when investing locally? Do they need to change their expectation on returns? Well, I think or? what we need to do is they need to have a heart-to-heart with themselves and say, um, you know, why are they investing in the first place? And if they're investing in the first place to have money um, to um, fund their retirement, then they should also pay attention of what type of world they will be retiring into. And it would be ironic if the investments they're making now are rendering that future world in which they retire, you know, toxic or super expensive or very unhealthy, right? So unless, Mm -hmm. you know, people are trapped in the positional game, where, you know, it's just a question of pecking order and how big is your yacht. If the money that you're saving and investing is to fund your retirement, then you need to pay attention to other things besides just the return. And so investing locally is a way of building the better world and community into which you can retire. Got it. So... Nick, I wanted to bring in your expertise here around blockchain because I'm curious to to see if there's opportunity to apply this at a a local level. So could you at least start by giving us a brief definition of what blockchain is? (laughs) Sure, sure. It's easiest just to think of it as a database. Um, And and sometimes people refer to it as, as a distributed ledger. It's just a very database with unique unique attributes and one of them is that it's um it's immutable and it, it keeps a record um you know regardless of if, if there are bad actors and it's an open database and so the first application most people are familiar with um, for a blockchain is, is bitcoin which is basically just a, a transactions ledger um for tokens these bitcoins um that that, that trade around um the interesting thing about having a database that's super high trust, and that's really what a blockchain delivers is trust, um, is that you can do some really interesting um, things with it. Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, You can, I know, I believe Starbucks is working on a pilot where they're looking at tracking basically coffee beans from from grower to cup. There's a supply chain. You can trust the provenance or the point of origin of these things all the way to the end point. Potentially, um, you know, while you're tipping your barista, you could tip the person who grew your coffee. Um, and so all of a sudden now you have this new, new networks that emerge that could never emerge before because the network is based on trust, trust of people. And so instead of having 
let's say, fair trade or someone else in the middle of, of the process telling you that something was organic or that, you know, was grown under good means, you now, um, assuming there's good process upstream in establishing the provenance of a good or service, you can have trust. And that is, um, that's extremely interesting. I um, have a role as, as chief strategist with a, a Swiss-based um, exchange that's blockchain-based called Lika, and we're doing some interesting projects involving um, trust and impact behaviors in some emerging, emerging world countries, and so we'll be rolling some things out, um, but basically being able to track and see what's happened in the supply chain of goods and services related to uh, some of the world's poorest people and, you know, prenatal care. Um, the real interesting thing about blockchain, I'll go back, is it delivers trust and it allows new trust networks to form. Um, and that sounds abstract, but, you know, the largest and most well-known trust network right now is Bitcoin. We've got mm-hmm. roughly, I think, $30, $40 billion worth of Bitcoin circulating around, representing 10 million people who don't know each other per se, but have a trusted means of exchanging value or tokens among each other. And this tech is being applied to lots of interesting areas, and it's going to take trust to new areas um, where it's never been. I I personally think it will be most impactful in the emerging world, but it's also going to be hugely impactful um, in the the developed world. I mean, all all the tokens right now in the blockchain space, Bitcoin, Ethereum, etc., you know, are now valued at over $110 billion. Um, to put that into context, you know, back in January, we were looking at 6 or $7 billion, maybe. Um, and so I, I gave testimony and, and some advice to the uh, G20 uh, a couple weeks back where I said, look, um, you know, this, this might not seem big to you guys in the context of the G20 representing, you know, the, the <laughs> you know, 80% of the world's GWP, but... Um, it's, it's not so much the size, it's the rate at which it's growing. Um, and mm-hmm. so uh, blockchain technology is a very interesting database structure, but it's also going to reorganize a lot of existing trust networks, whether that's for um, payments of goods and services, whether it's delivery of services, um, also, um, you know, creating new forms of security. Mm-hmm. Well, you're using it specifically or exploring the use of it in Correct. renewable energy and in healthcare. So could you just... Speak to sure. those very briefly. Sure, sure. Um, in renewable energy, um, you know, we created a thing called SolarCoin, which is a, a renewable energy um, reward system, which basically functions as a currency. And so the currency enters circulation uh, based on the proof of production of one megawatt hour of solar energy. So for every um, megawatt hour that can be verified produced uh, pretty much anywhere in the world, um, uh, you know, one of these units goes out. Um, currency, um, and uh, Marco didn't go into it um, uh, in, in full detail, but he gave excellent explanations for money. Um, currency is, is a subset of money, which is the notes and bills in your pockets. And then most of the other forms of money he was ex- ex- um, describing were credit and, and the emergence. And credit is a currency derivative. It references currency. It's a, a hope to be able to pay currency in the future. Um, and currency is a really interesting phenomenon, and Bitcoin's one case, and SolarCoin's another, where we use currency, which is effectively a positive externality, and we apply it to incentivize more of what we're viewing as a positive externality, i.e. Um, solar energy production, and we now do that in, in 39 countries. 
Nick, I have a question for you regarding uh, the seniorage of this new uh, solar coin that gets into uh, production yeah. every time you detect one more mega megabyte. Oh, who captures that? I mean, who, who is receiving the value of that new uh, mm, yeah. you know, solar coin being created? Uh, the vast majority that goes to the, uh, the recipient. The solar coin is given out for free. So one megawatt hour of energy is produced. And the recipient um, receives the... So the person the who produced the one megabat, uh, um, uh, megawatt receives a solar coin? Correct, correct. So if you oh, have okay. panels on your roof... Yeah, if you had panels on your roof, for example, um, most people have you know, a couple kilowatts on the roof, you would produce maybe six to eight megawatt hours of energy um, per year. Right. And so these... You know, is, um, I think one, uh, one of the uh, currency experts said... Uh, it's very easy to create a currency. It's very hard to get it accepted. So the question is, once uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, I get eight or twenty uh, solar coins uh, out of production. Sure. I mean, who? How can I spend it? Who? Who can accept that sure. as uh, informal sure. payment? Sure, it's a great question, and it's an interesting one. Um, I'm actually working on a paper with um, a friend of mine uh, from Columbia on Columbia University on um, the economics and the value economics of currency because economics does not have a theory of value of currency. So there's a theory of value for equities and bonds, right? It's, hey, here's the cash flow, here's the, the balance sheet, here's the future expected cash flows. Economics doesn't have that for currency. Um, it's a very interesting thing. It's a, a um, social network protocol. It's emergent value. Um, I won't go into it. On <laughs> We don't have an extra 10 minutes. Here. But, um, <laughs> yeah, we, we, we give away... Um, the currency and in terms of the um, acceptance and let's say what's the utility function, the interesting thing is there are exchanges for this currency. So like there's $30 billion worth of Bitcoin circulating around, there's, there's you know, a couple million dollars of solar coins circulating around and it's, it's growing. It's grown by a factor of 20 to 30 um, in the last two years, two or three years. And, and we think it'll be interesting in the future as well. Um, the great thing is um, pretty soon you'll be able to spend it almost anywhere. Um, they're the exchange I work for in, in a Swiss-based exchange that's going to be coming to the U.S. soon. We're not regulated yet in the U.S., but we are a fully regulated um, exchange. When we come to the U.S., we'll be offering a debit card product. And so effectively, um, you'll be able to spend your solar coin wherever you can use a debit card. And I was at the uh, uh, UNFCCC, the, the U.N. folks who oversee the, the uh, climate change uh, structure and program. I was in Bonn uh, a while back and a couple weeks ago, and I said, hey, I hope the next time I visit um, for COP23, um, I hope I can spend my solar coin in your cafe and get coffee, and I'll just use a debit card. And the exchange I'm going to have to stop um, you there, we'll Nick. We'll be, yep. We're speaking with Marco Evangelisti and Nick Gogarty, and we'll be right back after a short break. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. What is your purpose? In the journey that we call life, our values are pre-programmed into us before we're born. During our lives, we pick up life's lessons and soul connections along the way. We explore this path on Soul Sessions with Solstice, featuring hosts Delana Davis and Rita McRae. Our program is designed to help you more confidently live from your heart and not just your head. Tune in live for Soul Sessions with Solstice every Friday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
If you're considering adoption, there are a lot of questions that you may have which need to be answered by families that have adopted, by the adoptees themselves, and by professionals. Tune in to Adoption Unscripted with your host, Micah Johnson. We bring you many of the answers you're looking for. There are so many resources and advocates in the field of adoption. It's a life-changing experience across the board. We hope you'll tune in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Envision with Thomas Rosenberg. To find out more about the program, please visit our website at Regenerate.coach. That's Regenerate.coach. You can also visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com forward slash Envision Regenerative Communities. Now back to Envision. Here again is Thomas Rosenberg. Welcome back. We're here with Marco Vangelisti and Nick Bogarty, and we were talking about investing locally and also, more specifically, some of the attributes of blockchain. And so, Nick, we had to cut your comments short, so I didn't know if there was anything else that you wanted to wrap up uh, from what you were talking about before the break. No, I, I, I think we, we just got it right in under the wire, so uh, I'm good. Okay, talk. good, good. So, Marco, what recommendations would you have for communities who – are interested in exploring how to slow money down locally for themselves. What resources do you recommend they, they explore? Uh, well, one resource would be my website where they can both learn about those large systems. I mean, we, we had a, a very broad conversation today about three systems, really, money and banking, economics, you know, talking about environmental economics versus, um, you know, ecological economics and finance. Uh, we're talking about risk, equity, bonds, and so on. So those are very complex topics. Um, um, your audience can go to my website, which is ek4t.com. stands for Essential Knowledge for Transition. So the four is number four, ek4t.com. And they'll find information about those three systems, how to orient themselves and understand in more depth uh, what we were discussing with Nick today. And uh, um, part of that is also um, an area on investing and local investing, for Slow Money proper, uh, they can go to slowmoney.org, which is the national organization, and they can see if uh, there is a local group. There are about 20 groups around the country uh, that are gathering uh, and uh, making local investments and uh, talking about you know, how to fix the economy from the ground up. And so that's uh, another uh, good resource that people can, can access. Super. Thank you. Uh, Nick, if people want to explore using blockchain in the community, what recommendations would you have for resources? Boy, that's, <laughs> that's a tough one. Um, 
you know, in terms of, I, I guess it would just be first learning about what it is. I mean, if, if, if you generate mm-hmm. solar energy, great. You can go get your, your solar coin at, at, at solarcoin.org, all one word. Um, you know, learning about potential blockchain applications um, for the local community is, it's still very early days. And so finding local applications is, is pretty difficult. And so mm-hmm. I would suggest, you know, research up on the tech and watch it, but it's still not quite there for, um, let's say, small-scale impacts. Do you think it would work for microgrids? If a community uh, yeah, wants? For micro, yeah, for microgrids, you know, and again, it's a microgrid depending on what your, your regulatory environment is, but, you know, do you go find um, a company called LO3 um, out of Brooklyn? Um, there's some people working, again, this is all very early stuff, um, called Grid Singularity. Um, uh, they're doing some things. You have a group called Grid Plus, uh, which is also a Brooklyn initiative out of consensus. Um, those, are, those are a few uh, that come to mind. But again, these okay. are all very early, early technologies, so it's, it's really got to be somebody who wants to kind of you know, be an early pilot of this stuff. Sure, sure. So... <laughs> So it's all actually an intermediate step, right? Because uh, blockchain is a new technology, uh, and again, it's global in nature. Uh, in fact, we want yeah. to be as global as possible. Now, for um, dealing with money and money transaction locally, you can think about local currencies, right? And so there are some yeah. good books in terms of how do you design a local currency in a way that is sustainable and that it works. So maybe one book I can mention is uh, The End of Money and the Future of Civilization by Thomas Greco is a good one mm-hmm. to give a sense for how to design a local currency so that can be uh, you know, sustained beyond the first two years of enthusiasm when everybody burns out and throws their hands up. <laughs> <laughs> Super. No, that's really... Um... That's that's very helpful, Marco. Thank you. Yes, I I didn't realize that they had such a short life uh, lifespan. Local currencies. <laughs> yeah, I mean there are some very good local currencies that have uh, quite a bit of stamina, like the Weir, which is basically an right. electronic barter system, business to business in Switzerland. Uh, but uh, and you know there are things called Let's, for example, which are local electronic trading systems that uh, have been around for a while and, and tested. But a lot of the uh, you know, local currencies are started by n- young men in their late 20s. And then uh, <laughs> the, the, you know, what happens is that they, they are really excited about capturing the senior eyes, right? Just printing money and send it out. And then eventually yeah. it's going to collect in you know, one spot in the community, you know, maybe the, the ice cream parlor. And then uh, they'll know what to do with all that cash that they cannot get rid of. Anyhow, it's, it's an interesting story. I've seen a number of them. But that book that I mentioned provides some guidelines as to how to design this in a way that is sustainable. Super. So, Nick, earlier you mentioned yeah. a little bit about uh, the Lika exchange and yeah. some of your other work. So, could you just share briefly what you're focused on at, currently and sure. Sure. where people can follow your work? Sure. I mean, um, Lika has a lot going under the hood. It's, it's um, spelled the Swiss word. It's L-Y-K-K-E dot com. Um, again, we'll be coming to the United States, um, you know, pending our, our, our regulatory process we're going through right now. Um, we're doing a few things. Uh, we're launching um, 100 hackathons in 100 cities globally, all based around um, the UN sustainable, uh, sustainability, uh, SDGs, Sustainable Development Goals and um, blockchain. And so we 
we're having our first energy hackathon in Bangkok. Um, we'll have one in New York um, probably in September. And we're also doing a few other projects around um, social currencies um, and natural capital. So SolarCoin is one that's traded on, on Lika. Um, we also have uh, what's called a mangrove or a tree coin, uh, which basically you end up getting a, uh, a proxy for a tree in a mangrove forest, and you end up you know, effectively getting the, uh, the returns um, from whatever the carbon yield uh, or carbon offset is in that. So we're developing uh, natural and social capital um, for currencies, and these are fully um, exchangeable. So the, the founder of our exchange built um, a business uh, in the retail forex business that now does um, $10 billion a day in the traditional uh, foreign exchange business world. So we're doing a few things like that, and we are talking also to um, governments and development agencies about payment systems and how to use currency as a reward for um, positive social impact in the field. Wow. That's a lot. So where can people follow? Should they just go to uh, subscribe to a newsletter on, on Lika.com? Yeah, I mean, yeah, read the Lika blog and a lot of this stuff, you know, we're in early, you know, early stages um, because of what we're dealing with and some of the things we're launching, um, but that's, that's what's going to happen. And, you know, for your U.S. listeners, unfortunately, um, you know, we're, we're shooting to be regulated and up and running in the States, um, hopefully Q3, Q4 of, uh, of this year. So Okay, excellent. And Marco, yeah. besides your website at... Uh, EK4, uh, EK, sorry, EK4T.com. Is there any other work that you would like to profile and where people can follow you? Uh, that's the best way. I mean, they can sign up for my newsletter. I usually send out a newsletter once a month with some resources and interesting articles and links. And uh, uh, otherwise, explore, you know, I even have a series of uh, webinars on local investing on my website. So, People can poke around and find a number of resources or links to other resources in context. Super. Well, thank you, Nick and Marco. It's been a real pleasure having you on the show today. All right. Thank thank you you very much for having us. Yes. We've spoken about money, what it is, the benefits of slowing it down, and different options that new innovations like blockchain offer for potentially local control for resource flow and increased Mm -hmm. transparency. Next week, we'll be discussing food and fiber sheds, and my voiceamerica.com host page has the recording of today's show, other episodes, and links to mine and my guests' social media channels. Feel free to send me any questions, comments, or ideas via email, and that's at envision at regenerate.coach. Thanks again for joining us today, and see you next Tuesday. I'm Thomas Rosenberg. Thank you for tuning in this week to Envision with Thomas Rosenberg. Be sure to join us again next Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a terrific week.